You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Sam, there's some kid at school that tells, a girl, I think, that tells on him for doing something. And I told him, because I can still remember her name. I won't say it here because she could she could be listening. I can still remember the name of the girl in fifth grade who would always say, Ms. whatever name, Jack didn't put his name on his paper. I'm like, what? what She'd what have made hell, a good Nazi. What the hell difference does it make to you? You know, you got to pass all your papers down to the end of the row. She'd go through them. She's that sort of person. Right. Jack didn't put his name on his paper. Right. Oh, my God. Yep. <laughs> I'd like to know where she is and what she's doing. <laughs> well, if she was alive in 1939, she'd be saying there's a Jew in that attic. <laughs> that kind of person has always driven me crazy since I was a small child. So I have uh, railed against the political controversy of the day now for quite some time. You're I, a railer. My uh, my belief is that whatever is the n- n- not real stories like the Russian ha- hacking today is a real story. Um, I'm fine with that being in the news, mm-hmm. but they're regularly Trump tweeted this or somebody said that or whatever. And everybody talks about it all day long. And I've always, and my belief is that nobody's no real person is paying attention to this crap. They're just not, they don't even know what happened, let alone they're going to sit around and talk about it for an hour. And those who are pretending to won't be talking about it in no. 48 hours. Here's some fascinating numbers that back up that idea. That is actually good news. I just don't know how we toss out the uh, the, the the people that spend too much time thinking about politics. Uh, this survey found. Who did this? Somebody with Stony Brook University. A couple of people with names that you wouldn't know. Um, they did a, a survey. This is what they found about most Americans. Upward to 80 to 85%. Follow follow politics casually or not at all. Up to 85% of Americans follow politics casually or not at all. Just 15% or so follow it closely, which is interesting. Wow. Yeah. Which would explain the ratings for, well, a lot of uh, AM radio across the country and cable news channels. Mm-hmm. Um, At the start of the year, pre-pandemic, they asked people to name the two most important issues facing the country. Um, they found some clear partisan divides, blah, blah, blah. But on a number of other issues, they found that Americans fall much less neatly into partisan camps. For example, Democrats and Republicans who don't follow politics closely believe that low hourly wages are one of the most important problems facing the country. For hard partisans that follow politics all the time, the issue barely registers as important at all. So for 85% of America, both Democrats and Republicans, low hourly wages is the top issue. Mm. That's for 85% of America. For people that are super into politics, it doesn't really make the list. Isn't that interesting? Uh, yes. Partisan Republicans were most likely to say drug abuse was the most important problem. Less attentive Republicans ranked it second to last. They were also concerned about deficit and the divisions between Democrats and Republicans. Among Democrats, the political junkies think the influence of wealthy donors and interest groups is the urgent problem. What? But less you atti- got your own. But less attentive Democrats are 25 percentage points more likely to name moral decline as an important problem facing the country. How interesting. Uh, a problem that partisan Democrats never even mention. That's how far apart we are within our own parties. Well, that's absolutely a clue how political campaigns get misled and, and start sure. to... Uh, cater to the Twitter class, which is an even smaller percentage of Americans with enormously outsized voices. Isn't that something? So you got the the, the talking news cable heads and the, and the Washington Post reporters and all that sort of stuff talking about wealthy donors and the influence of the Koch brothers and all that sort of stuff. 
the average Democrat or 80, the average understates it, 85 percent of Democrats are saying a moral decline is a big, a bigger problem. The whole wealthy donor thing. I don't even know what you're talking about. Right. That's wild. moral decline. That is your classic farm belt, rust belt Democrat, Southern Democrat. They're, they're more concerned about what they see in their neighborhood than some sort of theoretical George Soros versus the Koch brothers, you know, war of the worlds. Well, and on the Republican side, uh, they had drug abuse as the most important problem, which it is a problem, no doubt. But and that's your that's your partisan Republicans see it that see that. That's but, interesting. I would I would guess it would be different. But the less attentive Republicans, people the eighty five percent that don't pay that much attention, ranked it second to last. They're mostly concerned about the deficit. That's, and that's div- counterintuitive. And to me. divisions between Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, that I could see. Um. I would think the uh, the drug overdoses is a very uh, my neighborhood ish issue. Uh, hard oh, par- interesting. Hard partisans are twice as likely as people who pay less attention to politics to say that they would be unhappy if their child married someone of the opposing party. Well, that's not surprising. No, it's not. No. Also, we've talked about this even this week. A Pew study finds that ten percent of Twitter users are responsible for ninety-seven percent of all tweets about politics. Mm. You could call it all. It's close enough. Ninety-seven percent is close enough Please. to all. Please, ten percent right. of Twitter users is responsible for all the politics going on. Ninety percent of Twitter users are responsible for three percent of political tweets. That's another good. way to look That's at it. That's pretty good. That's something. Yeah. Twitter is angry at this topic. No, a tiny number of people are angry. The rest of America, like practically everybody, doesn't even know what you're talking about, let alone is angry about it. You know what I heard the other day, and this is a uh, old, older folks, younger folks thing, is there are twice as many people TikToking as uh, are on the Twitter. Twice as many. Of course, you know, funny dog videos are a different sort of thing than a lot of what's on Twitter, but. Here's some of the summary. This gap between the politically indifferent and hard, loud partisans exacerbates the perception of a hopeless division in American politics because it's the partisans who define what it means to engage in politics. When a Democrat imagines a Republican, she's not imagining a coworker who mostly posts cat pictures and happens to vote differently. She's likely imagining a coworker she had to mute on Facebook because the Trump posts became too hard to bear. Right. We ask a group of over 3,000 Americans to describe either themselves or members of the other party. Only 27% of these people said that they discuss politics frequently. A majority consider themselves moderates. But nearly 70% of these people believe that a typical member of the other party talks about politics incessantly and is definitely not moderate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that I've, is something. I've only had a few good ideas in my life. Marrying Judy was certainly one of them. Another one, which I've tried to express on this show, is that please, 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 Understand that the American media become a freak show. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's it's a bunch of sensationalism designed to get your attention. And if you want to include us in this, that's fine. I can take it. Um, look around you. Look at the people you work with, your neighbors, your friends, the people at your church, your little league, whatever. That's America. The media is not America. This is a wonderful country full of mostly wonderful people. Plenty of jackasses, Lord knows, but mostly really good people who don't hate each other. They're not racists and, and the rest of it. And it, you see a group that the media is amplifying. I would That's an indictment of that group, honestly. That just means they're exciting and get clicks. 
That doesn't mean they're America. Please, they're not. They're finally... I don't watch the news. That's a good decision, young man. <laughs> Apparently. We should play that whole thing sometime. That oh, whole thing is so good. It is so delightful. Well, Grandpa plays the Powerball. <laughs> <laughs> we watch the news right after Grandpa watches the Powerball. <laughs> oh, I love that kid. That kid is probably 23 now, the way time goes by. <laughs> right. A final statement on this. For partisans, politics is a morality play, a struggle of good versus evil. But most Americans just see two angry groups of people bickering over issues that may not always seem pressing or important. What? They ought to wake up. <laughs> that is some interesting stuff right there. Yeah. and The I, fact that 85% of people are, are, are just kind of casually following this stuff. Let me add one more layer on. The hardcore understand that if you can bend government policy to your will, There are trillions of dollars flowing through Washington, D.C. There's an enormous swamp full of profit there. And they convince the the casual folks that, well, this is good for you, or it's kind, or it's compassionate, or whatever. And it's just a way to get more money to go through D.C. so they can siphon more off. And it does not do you any good to grow the federal government, my friends. I could say that the, the political crowd... Um, especially the people that are in politics or are in business with politics. Um, go ahead. Barely pay attention. Post your cat pictures. Don't be that engaged. There are $3 trillion worth of taxes we collect every year, right. and that money goes somewhere, and right. I'm getting a big chunk of it, and you're not because you're posting cat pictures. Exactly. Be the distracted <laughs> shopkeeper while I'm shoplifting the, the hell out of you. There is a certain amount of that. Well, and here's here's a for instance for you. You've probably heard that you're 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 the sort of person who keeps up on the news. You are involved. You are informed. You've heard about this Senate race or that Senate race or maybe a House race where uh, there's been two hundred million dollars spent, hundred fifty million dollars, most expensive race in Colorado history, et cetera, et cetera. The stories are all over the place, folks. Let me point out the obvious: that money is being spent. It's going somewhere. Where is it going? Who gets a 10% commission for spending that money? Who's on the payroll as a assistant campaign director? Where does that money go that you donate? It goes to people, the political class, who are getting crazy rich by convincing you the government should be bigger. I wonder if this text is from a woman. Back to the uh, the girl would say, Jack didn't put his name on his paper. Yes. Got this text from a better woman. She was flirting with you, Jack. That's what my wife always says when somebody's no. doing that with Sam. And I always say, "No, you women need to get better at flirting because that's not the way we take it. <laughs> we don't think, oh, I think she likes me by alerting the teacher that I made a mistake every day. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what women say. That's what my wife always says. Yeah. She did that because she likes you, Sam. Really? Well, she's making my life worse. How is that possibly going to... Benefit anybody. She's making me hate her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so maybe reassess your strategy. <laughs> I I hate this conversation uh, because funny. there have been a couple of women who've come up to me in my life at high school reunions or whatever and said, I had such a crush on you. And I'm like, what? Why didn't you? You could have. I just. Lady, lady, lady. What did you just say? Just I told down. the teacher every day you didn't finish your homework. Yeah, well, that wasn't what? an indication of anything. Ooh, <laughs> you suck at flirting. Ooh. <laughs>
You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Right. Mailbag. A late, great Abraham Lincoln, I should have said. <laughs> as, as Donald J. would put it. We shared with you earlier the George Orwell freedom-loving quote of the day. Uh, the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. It's, it's, an, it's a rather egg-headed thought. You must contemplate it for a while. A people that does not know its history, it does not know how it got to where it was, it does not have... It's, it's myths, it's heroes, it's, it's founding principles that remain today. If you remove that from a people, they will be uh, anchorless and easily manipulated, was Orwell's meaning, more or less. And then I want to layer this quote on top, if I might. <clears throat> also from George Orwell in 1984. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. <clears throat> <clears throat> now that is a, a it's the old uh, switcheroo or side. That's three way. What? Ah, if I you can terrify people into not dissenting, you can alter history. Teach them that their history is not what they thought. It's actually awful, and they're bad people. And then, if you control the past, you will control the future. The Marxists in the anti-racist movement, that's in quotes, by the way. They're some of the most racist people who have ever existed. Uh, they are taking Orwell as a, as a guidebook, not a warning. Um, or it's just as automatically the way people do these things. I don't. Uh, that's kind of interesting, too. Yeah, um, I, I think there are probably intellectuals who understand it. There are plenty of revolutionaries who do it instinctively. You know, you... If you're an adult, you have so much context about the history of your country and the world that it almost feels like you were born with it, but you weren't. And so if as a child you were taught different things, you would have a different, completely, completely different view of the world. If, right. you, if like my child and a lot of kids, you were taught that, you know, the United States has really been a force for evil in the world. And most of the bad things that that have happened have been because of the United States, and in particular, white people. Right. Um, That would be your entire, everything would flow through that. It it would. It would take a while to be deprogrammed. Oh, it would be very difficult. Yeah. Just like it would be very difficult to to change my view of history. Then you add to that the energy and the capability of the, uh, you know, we need a term for young adults, other than young adults, adolescent adults. Adults who have just become adults and think they know everything they need to know, which is the hubris of youth. I suffered from it. You suffered from it. And it is obnoxious um, because you don't know a tenth of what you need to know at age 20. Um, But anyway, you add all those things together. Yeah. And you get revolutionaries in the streets willing to drag their professors or their parents out and beat them down uh, for being counter-revolutionary. I'd love to know the, the, the story on this. Is there any other country in world history that matured to a point? That its own government was teaching its young people that it was a bad country. <laughs> to <laughs> loathe itself. Has that ever happened in history? I don't know if it has. Not exactly, no. It's troubling. Uh, on to the correspondence proper. Cindy O in the Black Hills of South Dakota writes, Personal opinion only in politics way to the side. ACB, excuse me. <laughs> ACB is a knowledgeable, poker-faced, and brilliant legal mind. That is all. 
WH, where's Hunter? Uh, thank you, Cidio. That is a a, a concise, uh, concise and 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 well spoken uh, opinion. Plus, I we really need to beef up our, our our ratings numbers in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Man, I, I I've spent so much time in the Black Hills of South Dakota. How black are they? Not that black, actually. Mm, interesting. Uh, I've got many relatives buried there. Is that right? Oh yeah. That's uh, that's that's touching. Uh, I don't know if my relatives are buried in particular anywhere. We're we're a wandering folk. We're nomads. I don't know why. W.H. Where's Hunter? Hilarious. Uh, Ken writes, guys, I recognized Kamala Harris's Mott and Bailey argument. She tried it on ACB, who was well aware of Kamala's attempt. ACB thwarted it with ease. Thanks to A&G for the education on Mott and Bailey. That's a... An argument where you start with a perfectly reasonable and defensible premise, then you throw all sorts of crazy theories out there. And then when somebody says, wait a minute, that's a crazy theory. Well, uh, good, for instance, there is racism in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. There's racism everywhere. I agree with you. Therefore, we must execute all white people. What? 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 That would be genocide. So you're saying there's no racism? You retreat to the defensible when somebody disputes the indefensible. And I missed it. When uh, Kamala tried that, but she is, uh, I need to talk a little more about Kamala Harris. Hmm. Uh, this is very brief and self-explanatory. The Flaming Lips, they're kind of an artsy band. They're a fun band. They have quirky songs. They performed a concert in bubbles. All the guys in the uh, band were in bubbles to a crowd that were all in, in big plastic bubbles last cool. night. Cool until everybody's asphyxiated. <laughs> How do you get air in those things? Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty show. What is the problem? I've never seen anything like this. This is when you guys are supposed to cheer. Please clap. Are you serious? Here's Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Tim Sandifer is the vice president for litigation for the Goldwater Institute. He is the author of several excellent books including more recently The Ascent of Jacob Bronowski, uh, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, and one of my all-time favorites, uh, The Right to Earn a Living. Oh, plus The Permission Society, which was inspired, he says, by conversations on this very program. Uh, he is our smart friend. He condescends to speak to us. It's Tim Sandifer. Hello, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Oh, it's our pleasure. According to your avatar, you're still bearded? Yes, that okay. is right. Nicely trimmed this morning. Fantastic. Good lead question, Jack. <laughs> Would you like to follow that up? Yeah, and actually, this is a pretty good lead question. So I'm looking at this poll that was taken right before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, asking the public, how do you feel about the makeup of the court? Because that's what all this fight is about. This is why people get so worked up about it. They're worried about, you know, it's going to move too far this way or that way. So they polled people. And the plurality of Americans felt that the court was just about right politically. 42% said it's about right. A third said too conservative. 23% said too liberal. How would you uh, describe where the court was politically, is politically, and where it will be if Amy Coney Barrett gets on it? The court was moderately conservative, and it will become a little bit more conservative. But the problem is that that kind of question is, is basically meaningless unless you're talking about what issue, what legal subject you're talking about. Because, you know, these justices have views about criminal law that differ from their views about civil law or contract law or property rights and things. And those just do not break down into any sensible conservative versus liberal axis. So the court in general will be more 
more conservative than it was before. But really what you need to talk about is what specific issues uh, will the court change on? Right. It was interesting how you phrased the question, Jack, too, that uh, how will it be uh, now politically as opposed to judicially? And that is that is a thing that is smeared, whether intentionally or unintentionally, in the media, media that a, a liberal court could conceivably come up with. I mean, a, an activist court could conceivably come up with outcomes that conservatives like politically and a very conservative judge that thinks, you know, all in all, we ought to stay out of most things might yield an outcome that uh, that liberal voters like. Um, how especially because especially because a lot of conservative judges kind of pride themselves on not using their political views in their judicial decisions. Justice Scalia, very famously so, was of the view that, you know, at, when I take my position as a judge, it's my role to enforce the law as written, even if I disagree with that law. And they, they kind of take it as a badge of pride. So it really isn't fair to, to, to characterize the court in broad political terms for that reason. So uh, it's come up a bunch of times over the last couple of days that she is an originalist. What is an originalist? An originalist is a, a, a person who believes that the Constitution should be interpreted in terms of how it was meant or understood in the 1780s when it was written or in the 1860s when the amendments were passed or what have you, as opposed to the idea that the meaning of the Constitution's text changes somehow over time or that it's or that it is an abstraction like a philosophical abstraction that a judge interprets in in philosophical terms so written there are different kinds of originalists and so there are some who think that what's important is what the people individually thought when they sat down to write the constitution in philadelphia in 1787 and then there are others who say no what what matters is what the average person would have believed the Constitution meant in the 1780s and so forth. So there are differences even within these these groups of, of scholars. But in broad terms, an originalist is a person who thinks the Constitution me- means today what it meant when it was written. Is, uh, is a textualist an originalist, or is there a difference? It, there are differences. Uh, okay, I mean, this it depends on who you ask. For example, I do not consider myself an originalist, but I do consider myself a textualist. What I mean by that is that I do think that the text obviously is what matters. When you're reading the Constitution, you have to understand what those words mean, not what you would like them to mean. What they mean now or what they broad. meant at the time, because uh, that can be different, I, can it? That's exactly the problem, exactly the problem. So an originalist says, well, it means what they meant at the time. And a, a textualist does not necessarily think that. So, for instance, Justice Gorsuch, in the recent case about discrimination against uh, people who are married to members of the same sex in the Bostock case, Justice Gorsuch is basically a libertarian. He ruled that the, the, the law does prohibit that kind of discrimination, even though nobody believed that at the time that that law was written. So that is a textualist argument as opposed to an originalist argument. He's not just making it up as he goes along. So he's not like a living constitution guy, but he doesn't think that the meaning of the law is created by the uh, historical fact of how it was written. Would the, uh, you know, not to get too far off on the Second Amendment, but would the uh, the, the, the founders who liked the Second Amendment, would they uh, believe that a person could own their own cannon? Because that would have been the most powerful <laughs> weapon you could owned in the world at the time, I think, as a cannon. 
you know, I'm reminded uh, of uh, I had a professor who who from Russia when I was in college and he used to speak about this. He said he said, you know, yeah, I, I have friends in Switzerland who really do have tanks in their garages <laughs> because they're all members of they're all you know required to serve in the military. It's not a big deal there. Uh, I think that the founding fathers would have thought that you have a right to possess firearms for self-defense. And then when it comes to something like a cannon, they would have said no. OK, interesting. Tim Sanford's on the line from the Goldwater Institute talking about the Supreme Court in general and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, positive, Sean, is now an appropriate time for your your question? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, just a point that I saw made on Twitter that I thought was interesting, and I, I would love to hear uh, your pushback against it. Um, uh, does an originalist, since the Constitution, and, m- and maybe the, this premise is wrong, only mentions an army and a navy, does that mean that the Air Force doesn't exist to a constitu- or an originalist, and if any rulings came about, about that, they would have to say, well, it doesn't exist in the Constitution, therefore no funding for the Air Force or, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, this is this is not at all a stupid question. So congratulations. Congratulations, well, John. Yes. I respectfully disagree. No. But go on, Tim. No, in the case of really squirrel is. versus acorn. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the answer to that is if you are if you ask the best originalist sneakers out there, and that's people like Randy Barnett, his professor at Georgetown, his answer would be, we're not looking at the specifics of what was written in the Constitution, but at the principles that they wrote into the Constitution. So the fact that they said the armed forces in the Constitution means that whatever is in, is designed as an armed force falls within what the Constitution was originally meant at the time. That, and maybe that's a persuasive argument. I actually don't think it's a persuasive argument for very sophisticated reasons we probably don't have to get uh, to get into. I, do, I think the Constitution clearly gives Congress the authority to create an Air Force, but not because that was in the minds of anybody in the 1780s. Okay. Does the Constitution, and this is more about Twitter than you, Sean, does the Constitution actually specifically mention the Army and Navy at all? Or just armed forces? Yes, it's a, it does. No, it says Army and Navy in, some, in one place, and it says uh, armed forces in another. Okay, mm. excellent. The Unconstitutional Air Force. I'll does it mention uh, <laughs> Elvis Costello's fabulous uh, album, Armed Forces, at all? That's in, that's in the, the, the Article 12. <laughs> so that's what I thought. Let's get to where the rubber meets the road or the sensible flats meet the, uh, the black robe in this case. Mm-hmm. Why has the Supreme Court become such a major part of American life in a way that it wasn't as much in the past. Why is everybody so fevered about it? The short answer is abortion. The long answer is the New Deal from the 1930s. So the, what all of this is about the politics of abortion because of the Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade in the 1970s. And since that decision, there's been a concentrated effort to get that decision overturned. And part of that has been to elect presidents who are going to nominate Supreme Court justices who believe that the Roe decision was wrongly decided. Now, of course, if Roe were overruled today, it would not ban abortion in the United States. It would mean that it was up to state Supreme Courts to decide whether their state constitutions protect abortion rights. And several states already have done so. California, uh, Kansas, all sorts of states have issued decisions saying it doesn't matter what happens at the U.S. Supreme Court. Abortion is a protected right at the state level. So that's the easy answer. But the long-term answer is that ever since the 1930s, Congress has been given such expansive powers, powers that the Constitution does not contemplate that it's become a really important priority to make sure that nobody gets on the Supreme Court who starts to say, wait a minute, all this stuff that the federal government has gotten itself into and state governments also, 
in the past 80 years or so, there's no constitutional foundation for that. And it really conflicts with a lot of in the Constitution. So maybe we should rethink that. That would be very dangerous to lots and lots of bureaucrats and to lots and lots of people who get paid for not working from the federal government and, and state government. So they, it's very important that they prevent that from ever happening. So that's the, the – and, and, you know, what has happened then is Congress passes these incredibly broad, incredibly vague laws – which then courts have to go in and figure out what they mean. So that means it's very important to control what goes on in the court. Isn't that a lot of it? I mean, that's what Senator Ben Sass com- keeps complaining about Congress not doing their job. They leave it so open-ended, and they want the court to deal with it so that they don't have to. That's exactly right, and, and he's totally right about that. And ever, of course, Congress has huge incentives to do that, right? Pass incredibly vague laws. That that look like a good thing, and then you can go home to your constituents and say, "Hey, look, I'm I'm a great guy. I did this. Uh, I passed this great law." But it's so vaguely worded that there's no real downside at first, and then gradually, then it's the court's responsibility to figure out what these laws mean. And the court starts saying, "Well, gosh, this is a very good law." Well, by that time, you've passed a buck. By that time, you've already been reelected to Congress, so you don't have to worry about it. And if anything goes wrong, you can blame the judges. I have a, a final question, but first, uh, Tim, a glimpse into our lives. We got uh, we were talking about Ben Sass a great deal. We quoted him yesterday. Got this uh, note from Jerry. Ha ha! You said Ben's ass. Thank you, Jerry, for that contribution. <laughs> now, see, now, now, see, now, see, that is not a textualist interpretation of the thing. <laughs> All right, here is my closing two-headed monster of a question. What is the worst Supreme Court decision that has not been overturned? Uh, you can deal with that first if you like. That would be Jones and Laughlin Steel versus National Labor Relations Board, which is a 1937 case that basically said that every single employment contract in the country can be regulated by the federal government. Ugh. And, and secondly, did you watch any of the uh, confirmation hearing stuff yesterday? Oh, God, no. Actually, I, I watched about 30 seconds of it. But the problem is it's so horrible to watch when you are a lawyer and you care about these things because it's like watching a television channel that's devoted to nothing but filming children fighting at a school playground. <laughs> no, 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 that's not right because it would be more like children who refuse to go to school. Fighting on a playground. Right. It's like watching CSI with an actual cop. They just spend the entire thing saying, oh, God. Well, that I love how they made a big deal about the fact that, that, that she didn't have any notes on the desk in front of her. Like, what notes do you need to answer questions that stupid? Or questions that aren't even questions, these two or three minute long monologues that these senators are giving that aren't even questions that have nothing to do with her. Well, it's clear you didn't watch yesterday. They got a half hour each, and some of the guys just droned on for an entire half hour and didn't even acknowledge the presence of the, the young woman there at the uh, the, the table. So, hey, before we, before we run out of time, do I remember correctly that you don't have a problem with uh, uh, just a simple majority for the Senate to put... Supreme Court justices on. You said it's not in the Constitution, so you don't have a problem with it. Am I right about that? Do I remember that? That's exact. Yes, that's right. And in fact, I I'm of the view that Supreme Court nominations ought to be more politicized than they are. I think it's a shame that nominees are coached never to answer substantive questions about their views of the law, and that we then place these people on the court when without really a clear idea of what they view the Constitution as meaning. And I and I think it would be healthier for our society 
if we had much more lengthy and more political debates over who gets put on the court and who doesn't. Interesting. So I, don't, just, I don't know how that would happen. Just but. understand, you're not saying, how would you decide this case? More on w- w- what's your view of the Constitution, what's your philosophy, that sort of thing? I would even ask a justice or a nominee, what do you think that such and such a case ought to be overruled? What do you think about this legal precedent? I absolutely would do that. Yeah, and these are people who are going to have life tenure on the Supreme Court of the United States. We should know what their views are of the Constitution. And expanding the Supreme Court, how do you feel about going from 9 to 11 or 13 or whatever? Well, I think there, there's... There's no constitutional reason why you can't do it in terms of, like, the text, but it's a really bad idea. That's, that really is a, the, a road you go down that ultimately destroys the constitutional system and turns everything into politics. And if you think everything ought to be politics, then, you're, you know, you have no reason to cherish the Constitution. And the only reason to expand, the, to pack the court, to expand the con- con- court and that sort of thing, is because your program cannot be justified in constitutional terms. And so you're saying basically, well, I've invented a new place, I'm going to throw out the rule book. And that's, that's a really bad idea. Tim, the lawyer, Sandifer, vice president for litigation, the Goldwater Institute. Uh, Tim, always enlightening. Thanks a million for the time. We'll talk again soon. Looking forward to it, guys. Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Mailbag. Your freedom-loving quote of the day recently tweeted by our friend Timothy Timothy Sandifer of the Goldwater Institute, Tim the Lawyer. Quoting the decision Granger v. Craven, 1924. I wish my name was Craven. What one creates by his own labor is his. Public policy does not intend that another than the producer shall reap the fruits of labor. Oh, what a quaint notion. If you work for it, you get to keep it. Or at least the vast majority of it. Ha 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 No, not anymore. A number of Michelangelo's wedding-related emails today. Yes. Interestingly enough. How many days away, Michael? Four? Uh, let's see. One, two, three, four, five. 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 There you go. Coming up this weekend, congrats on your upcoming wedding and for selecting a great day, writes both Steve and, uh, well, Steve. My wife and I were married on October 10th, 1992, an easy date to remember. Yours is even easier, 10-10-20. Ooh, is that by on purpose? So, well, Michael, was that on purpose or is that no, just a No, actually, date? that's not the wrong date. I didn't right know if you were your bride or numer- day off, if but... you're numerologist people or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, we went 10, 11, 20. There you go. So while we are celebrating our 28th anniversary this year, we'll raise a glass to you and your bride. Welcome to the 1010 Club, except they're getting married on the 11th. How insensitive of you, Steve. Thank you for the note nonetheless. And then this uh, from Kathy in the Ho, San Jose. Michael decided, uh, announced yesterday that he wishes there was a little time for humor in the wedding. You know, a little joke here and there. And, and Kathy <laughs> said... Guys, take his soundboard and 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 have the buttons ready during the ceremony. Yes. Perhaps in response to, <clears throat> uh, we are gathered here today in the sight of God. The Bible. Yes, I love it. Uh, do you take her in sickness and in health? I'm really sick to my stomach, and actually, I threw up yesterday. <laughs> do you, Alex Baldwin, <laughs> take her? See, this is no wool on here, Joe. Okay. What? No. Operating off different scripts. I told you where it was twice. 
Alex Baldwick, wool. <laughs> but there's no wool, but I'll give you and a maybe wool. On the way to the re- maybe wool. on the way to the reception. <laughs> Who wants to eat? Who the f*** wants to eat? Go have some to eat. Hooray! Thank you, Kathy, for that. <laughs> that That's pretty funny. Charming series of suggestions. <laughs> Sure, the bride would be appreciative. I was thinking on Friday we should take uh, wedding uh, marriage advice for married couples on the text line and spend some time on that. Assuming that might you know be fun. something crazy isn't happening, the president's in the hospital or we're at war with China. Uh, so we got a little elbow room. That'd be pretty good, and I think that'd be helpful for people married and not. Perhaps during the last hour of the show, when frankly uh, the energy level's running a bit low. Mm. Yeah. In uh, one minute, come on. Uh, let's see. We need to do some bonus mailbag in a bit. Let's see. That's a little complicated. Uh, a suggestion from Brian. Guys, um, how about using the phrase, all black lives matter, when the, that whole thing comes up? It's a good way to use the movement for good. Black on black shootings, uh, drug use, uh, cops. Uh, thanks for keeping me going in this interesting part of it's our life. It's fine unless whoever decides these things decides that's code for being a racist, and then you would get fired for saying it. But perhaps that's the way it works. Because Twitter would go crazy, a very small a number of militant crazy people, and your company would panic and kowtow to the mob. It's honest to God the way it works. But I like that. There is a uh, Texas Ranger is going to be prosecuted for shooting a black man unnecessarily. just happened. And I'm sure a big deal will be made of that. In the meantime, 250 young black men have been gunned down by each other. Nobody seems to care at all. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty.